Section 6 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 6, Centennial Act and Peerage Bill. In the April of the year that followed the 15, the ministers brought in and carried a bill extending the duration of parliaments. Originally, the sovereign could call and dissolve a parliament at his pleasure. The surviving members of the Long Parliament met in the year of the Restoration, twenty checkered years after their eventful election. Charles II kept one parliament together for seventeen years. Such a power is evidently greatly in favor of the monarch, who by selecting a moment of popularity might secure a parliament to his liking and keep it at a time when it could no longer represent the feeling of the nation. To prevent such a course, the Triennial Bill was passed a few years after the accession of William and Mary, by which it was made compulsory that the House of Commons should be re-elected every three years. William's title was too insecure for him to resist even if he wished, but the parliaments elected under the Triennial Act had not been especially good parliaments, not less corrupt than others, nor more zealous for popular rights and now with a rebellion just quelled and with a sovereign personally unpopular, it was felt that there would be no little danger in holding a general election. The Centennial Bill, increasing the length of life of a Parliament to seven years, was brought into the House of Lords and carried through all its stages in both houses in a little over a fortnight. In each house there was opposition to the measure, especially on the very fair ground that this particular Parliament, had no right to extend its own duration, to which argument there was no reply except the unanswerable plea of the public good. A decided majority, however, passed the bill, and there was no strong feeling on either side amongst the people at large. The Centennial Act is still the law of England, although custom has reduced the limit of a Parliament's duration from seven years to a period never exceeding six. Even this limit a Parliament is generally not permitted to reach. Though annual parliaments formed one of the points of the People's Charter, there is at present no considerable party that wishes to repeal the Centennial Act. Under it the House of Commons has increased in strength, and the period of six or seven years, with power in the hands of the sovereign to abridge the time, though not to lengthen it, may be regarded as a middle course between subserviency to the Crown, which a long-lived parliament might exhibit, and the frequent shiftings of power through annual parliaments. Some three years later, an endeavor was made to alter the constitution of the House of Lords. The Peerage Bill was a proposal of the ministry to limit the king's prerogative in the matter of the creation of peers. On the occasion of the Treaty of Utrecht, though there was a majority in the Commons in its favor, the majority in the House of Lords was hostile to the treaty, for in that house the majority was Whig. In the present day, this would probably not endanger a treaty, but at the time it was thought so important to secure a majority in each house that Harley, or to give him his title Lord Oxford as the Prime Minister, advised the Queen to make twelve new peers to vote for the treaty, thus securing the desired majority. A witty lord, in allusion to their number being the same as that of a common jury, asked if the new lords voted separately or through their foremen. 
The advice which Harley gave in this matter, as straining the royal prerogative, was one of the charges upon which stress was laid in the attack made upon him at the beginning of the reign. The ministers now proposed that the king should surrender the prerogative of making an unlimited number of peers, and they persuaded King George to give his assent to their proposal. The peerage bill provided that beyond the royal family the sovereign should have power only to add six to the existing number, though a new peer might be created whenever a peerage became extinct. The bill further provided that the system of electing sixteen representative peers of Scotland should cease, twenty-five being called up at once to the House of Lords, and the remaining Scotch peers being summoned to take seats whenever one of these twenty-five peerages became extinct. This latter proposal, though nowadays it would absorb almost all the Scotch peers, who are not also peers of the United Kingdom, and might therefore be held to be judicious, was shown to be hard on the Scotch peers who would not be within the magic twenty-five. Such peers have this peculiar disadvantage, that they cannot sit in the House of Commons. But the greater part of the opposition was directed against the limitation of the peerage. If this principle had become law, it would have changed the character of the English House of Lords and converted it into a caste. It is the glory of that house that by merit any one may rise to it, and that the son of a peer is a commoner, whilst a younger son, except of his own merit, will never be anything else. Moreover, the creation of peers is a safety valve to the political machine. If the sovereign and the commons be at one in favor of any measure, and the lords differ from them, this power not necessarily used, but held in reserve, would prevent a deadlock. On one famous occasion it had this effect. The difficulty in carrying the great reform bill would have been much greater if this unwise peerage bill had been law. Naturally the lords liked it, for it increased the power of each one of them individually as well as that of their house collectively. It was equally natural that the commons rejected the measure. Their action seems to have been almost entirely due to Walpole who insisted that the Whigs in the Commons ought to oppose the measure, and who led the opposition with a most eloquent speech. His influence on this occasion may be said to have foreshadowed the fact that he was the coming leader. It is interesting to remember, in connection with the conflict which raged over the Peerage Bill, that in the war of pamphlets, which all political measures produced, answering to modern leading articles, a sort of literary duel was fought between Addison and Steele. Once they had been close friends, but on this occasion they wrote very bitterly of each other. Addison, under the name of Old Whig, took the side of the Lords, chiefly basing his support of the bill on the creation of the Twelve Peers. Steele called himself plebeian and urged arguments similar to those of Walpole. It was only a few weeks after this that Addison died. Addison's fame belongs to the world of letters and rests on the purity and delicacy of his writings and on the excellent influence which they enjoyed. He was a remarkable instance of the way in which, in that day, success in literature drew political position with it. On the accession of King George, Addison was appointed secretary to the Lord's Justices 
who acted as a council of regency until the king's arrival. One of the commonplaces of essayists is a story how, in drawing up the address to the king, Addison hesitated so long in his choice of words that at length the Lord's justices sent for an ordinary clerk, who at once did what was wanted. The obvious answer has been given that a clerk would be likely to know the forms better than a minister, and curiously enough on the accession of George II, a similar difficulty in drawing up an address was felt by no less an official than the Speaker of the House of Commons. It is probably true that Addison, though so renowned as a writer, was not a good minister, and a striking remark of a modern historian, Sir James Mackintosh, may here be quoted. What a good exchange of stations might have been made by Swift and Addison. Addison would have made an excellent dean, and Swift an admirable secretary of state. This, at any rate, will not hurt the feelings of those jealous for literature, because Swift is as famous an author as Addison. A serious drawback to usefulness upon the treasury bench in Parliament would have arisen from Addison's shy and retiring manner, if the traditions be true that he is himself the silent spectator of his famous book. Strange irony of fate, that the man who described himself, living in the world rather as a spectator of mankind than as one of the species, making himself a speculative statesman, soldier, merchant, and artisan, without ever meddling with any practical part in life, resolved to observe an exact neutrality between the Whigs and Tories, should, within seven years of penning these words, be made a Secretary of State. Yet Addison's colleagues, knowing competent judges, must have thought well of his business faculties and valued his assistance, for he continually rose in place, and three years from the beginning of the reign we find Addison made one of the two secretaries of state. This office answers to what we now call the Home Department. In this position, Addison did not distinguish himself except by modesty and leniency, but he had been reluctant to accept office, was in bad health all the while that he held it, and resigned as soon as he could. Fifteen months after his resignation, and a few weeks after the controversy with Steele, Addison died. The story is well known how on his deathbed he summoned his stepson and former pupil, a wild young lord, that he might see in what peace a Christian could die. End of section 6